Hello and welcome to another episode of the Software Synergy Podcast. Today we have a very special guest on the show, none other than Michael McDermott. I've known Michael for a very long time and he's got a story that I think you'll want to listen to. So sit back and relax and listen to your favourite technology podcast. Here's the chat between me and Michael McDermott. Well, Mike, thank you very much for joining me on another episode today. How are you? Not too bad. How are you? Very, very well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I wanted you to come on the pod for a while, Mike. I think there's a fantastic story from your side to tell. In case people don't know who you are, perhaps you could give us a very quick introduction to yourself. Sure. My name is uh, Michael McDermott. I'm the head of software engineering and lead engineer at OnDefend. Awesome. Okay, perfect. So look, you've had a quite a successful career, Mike. You know, you've done a lot. You've worked for a lot of companies. How did you get into software engineering? Sure. Great. Yeah. So I got into software engineering in kind of a I kind of backed into it. So at one point I went to school, thought being a lawyer was what I wanted to do, then decided that wasn't for me and always been a big tech guy, always was the computer guy of the house, all that kind of stuff, right? So I was like, you know, one of the things that interested me originally was like network engineering. So I went to school originally to be on like a network admin type side, things along those lines. When I was looking for a job, it happened to be about 2009, 2010, which obviously was a tough time in the job market in general. That was a fun time for everybody. And I found an ad on Monster which said programmers needed will train, which at the time I was like, all right, what's the scam here when I get in there? <laughs> what's going on? Right. And it actually ended up being for United Health Group. They were obviously, obviously one of the largest uh, health insurers in the country, right? United Health Group. But one of the things that they do is their core processing for claims is actually still on the mainframe. And it's something that obviously the average programmer age was like 57 or something like that. So they were bringing people in to program and teach them how to write, maintain and write new code for the mainframe. So that's actually where I got my start at 24, writing on the mainframe in programs that were written before I was born. So I kind of backed into it. And then from there, just continued to grow my knowledge around programming. Because obviously, I took classes in high school and in college, and my things were you know, basic HTML, Java, all that fun stuff. Right? Like, so I had a basic understanding of programming, but it wasn't where I saw myself originally. But then when I got into it, the problem solving and the creativity of how to solve a problem, I think, is what really drew me in. And that kind of is what started and kicked off my career in programming. Yeah. Quite a different career path to being a lawyer though. Yes. Very different. <laughs> you know, I think the thing that drew me in was I tend to like to argue and I like uh, yeah. to you know, <laughs> prove my point, which when you get into it, you realize is like 1% of the actual job. There's a lot more to it. So it just wasn't what my passion was and computer and technologies were. So it kind of drove me here. And then the programming side of it, I think when I got into it, I actually did it because like, you know, when I originally thought of programming, I'm thinking like web development where I'm just centering divs all day and it wasn't what I was looking to do. But when I got into like actual problem solving part of it, right? Like how to like, you know, make it do what you want it to do. Yeah. It's really what drew me in. Right. And it was funny. I went through the way I look at it is I kind of went through like the entire programming like life cycle, like of all programming languages. I started on the mainframe, which not many people my age have done. So I've gone from like assembly language down at like the core levels of it now all the way up to modern frameworks and modern web development. Right. So like I've seen 70 years of programming in the 10 years I've been here, 10 plus years I've been doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. I think when I speak to a lot of leaders, right, they always make the point that when you first get into engineering, it's very difficult to leave, not because of your, you know, your skill sets aren't transferable. It's because, you know, new emerging technologies keep coming out on a regular basis, which keeps you interested in the industry itself. What would you say some of the, I guess, the, the most interesting technologies you've come across in your career? So I know it's cliche to say, but the, the modern stuff that we're doing right now, right, like AI and GPTs, sure. LLMs is pretty intriguing, right? 
Well, the first things that really, one of the first big things that got me intrigued was just some of the modern JavaScript frameworks, because that was one of the hardest parts for me being a non-super creative person as far as like visually creative, right? I always struggled with web design because it was all handwritten, like writing all that JavaScript yourself just to make a button work, right? And then it was square and the way you wanted it to be was difficult. But when that, when like React and Angular, and they had all these libraries that people built for them to be able to do, it really got me going in web development and really helped me like push towards that new thing, right? Now that we're in GPTs, like I've been messing around with that in a lot of my spare time, building out different models and different applications around some of these LLMs and maybe even training some smaller LLMs myself. Yeah. So like, like you said, like every couple of years, there's something new that pops up that you know ropes you back in. It was cloud for a while, like building services in the cloud, going serverless in the cloud, like all that migrating to the cloud, like was the big thing that kind of got your attention. Now it's this GPT and LLM and how do I get AI and machine learning into our platform, right? So it's, there's always, like you said, every couple of years, something new that really pops and, you know, drags you back in. Yeah, for sure. What part of technology do you think is absolutely crucial to know? I know that's a very, very broad question. Yeah. A lot of people might have different answers, but from your experience, what would you say the fundamentals are that are so, so key to know? Some of the, the key fundamentals I think to know is just basic programming structure, right? It's not really about the language. It's not about object-oriented versus non-object-oriented or compiled versus non-compiled, right? Like it's understanding, you know, programming flow data in, data transformation, data out, right? Like there's a goal in programming and being able to see that end-to-end -end goal, I think is what really makes an efficient programmer. You can research anything you want off Stack Overflow or any of these, uh, and now with Google, Co you know, GitHub Copilot and you know, all these things, right? Like it can spit the code out for you, but if you don't understand what the goal is or what you're trying to do with it, that's yeah. a lot of that stuff isn't really useful, right? Of course, I know that makes complete sense. And in terms of your career, your trajectory went forward, you know, you worked for some massive companies, Deloitte, one of them, and then you came on to be an engineering lead at Northwestern Mutual. What was that transition like becoming from an IC, an individual contributor to more of a, a leadership position? So the biggest thing that I realized is I always pulled back from exceptional leaders that I had in my career. What worked with them is what I try to emulate, right? Like I think back of all the different managers I have, as you work your way into leadership, you pick and choose the pieces that you thought worked with each of your other managers before that, right? Because that's one of the things that as someone who wasn't in trouble for a long time, like I know it's a cliche, but micromanaging is one of the things that I think can really eat into a developer, right? If your manager or your lead is like looking at every line of code you do and nitpicking like, oh, maybe there should be two spaces or you know, I don't like the variable name and all that fun mm -hmm. stuff. Right? Like you can really get down in the weeds if you want and just then how are you doing your job as a manager managing other people if you're so focused in all these little tasks, right? I think a job as a leader is to a, one, lead by example, and two, to also allow the trust that you hire the right people, right? And the right people are working underneath you. If you trust them, I think you get to see the growth and the skills that they have really flourish, right? If they feel confident to make decisions, I think the right decisions are made. Agreed. And in terms yeah. of your transition to being a leader, what made you think that you were a potential good leader? At first, it was a, that aspirational goal you always have, right? Like when you're a kid, you want to be leading things. You want to be the guy yeah. in charge, you know, sure. goes back to sports. You want to be the captain. You want to be the go-to person. You want to be the one called to hit that game winning shot. You want to be the one that everyone comes to and you, you know, giving that big speech before a game or whatever it is. Right. So I think sports kind of leads to that leadership, right? Growing up, like you have that idea of wanting to be the captain, wanting to be the one in charge. And then when getting into the workforce, you start at least from my experience, one of the things that I did to really help myself get the tools I wanted to leave was I went back and got my MBA to really tie the business and the technical side together. So I got my MBA and that's what led me to the Deloitte because, you know, one of those things that was led me to Deloitte to get out of being 
hands on keyboard for a little bit to see the other side. And then when I went back to Northwestern Mutual, it was a combo, right? I was leading teams while also coding myself, right? And that continued out of my current role. So it's just one of those things that I feel like you look back on what worked for other people. It might be a little biased because it's what worked for me as an individual contributor. And sometimes you have to adjust yourself to see what works for the people underneath you, right? So I think it's an ever-growing and ever... You're always learning how to be a, how to be a leader, even when you are a leader. Of course. Absolutely. And one thing I wanted to touch upon, right, is that you've, I guess, been on both sides of the coin from being out from a consultancy and a, an end customer, if you will. But you've also mm -hmm. been on both sides of the coin for being a full-time employee and a contractor. Yep. Either what you're one or the other, mostly. Either you want a life of contracting, that flexibility of working for various different companies, different projects, then moving on to the next project. Or you'd like you're a lifer at one company. You'd like to be there for, for a long period of time and then move on to the next one. You'd like to be settled, et cetera, et cetera. What would you say the pros and cons of being a full-time member of staff and a contractor are? So I think one of the pros of the contracting life, obviously, is the wealth of knowledge you can gain quickly, yeah. right? You do a couple six month contracts, a year contracts, and you learn how different companies do different things, right? You have experience builds with you, right? Like you now, when you go into another environment, you're like, oh, that's different than how another place did it. And you can kind of be like, hmm, which one do I like better? And it kind of helps mold your style as you go forward, right? But then the downside, obviously, is there's a lot of things like some of the long term growth things that you don't get when you're a contractor that you do as a full time employee, you know, whether that be in employee stock purchase plans. Sometimes the growth, it depends on the, uh, where you're at in an enterprise, but some large enterprise, there's like so many different areas you can go into once you get in, right? Like you get in, you get your one job, and then you can internally apply to like a bunch of other teams and work your way through that way, right? So I think both things have their pros and cons. Like besides being larger enterprises, also sometimes have bigger budgets. So like you get to do some more cutting edge things, right? Because they're testing out the waters and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, like you said, I, I bounce on both sides. A lot of places that I've been contractor has been also contract to hire, which yeah. is a fun route because then you get to, everyone gets to test it out, right? Like you get to see if you like the company and they get to see if they like you. So it's not, you know, it's not a commitment for anybody. And then, because I think that's one of the, I think Gary V said it. And it's one of those things that sometimes as leaders, we don't always think of is that it's okay if you hire the wrong person or they're not a fit for you. You don't have to make it work, right? And I think that's what contracting gives you that thing that you get that three to six month or nine month, whatever it is, runway to figure out if this is going to work for you. And if it is, then that place most likely will continue to bring you on. Or, you know, you cut your ways and you go find your next opportunity. Yeah. Would you have a preference? I think I'd go with the, maybe it's just a personal thing now that I'm looking back with family and all stuff. I like the idea of working full time versus yeah. contractor. I think earlier in your life, contracting is great because of the experience you grow. I mean, that's one of the things that if you look at my resume, I kind of did. And it's something I figured out earlier was that, you know, two years at a place, you could hop to a new place, get that promotion, and then, you know, hop to the next one two years later for another promotion. And you kind of kind of can hack that together. And that's kind of where I went down that route a little bit by accident at first. And then it kind of led itself that way as I continue out down my career. Interesting. Okay, cool. So yeah, yeah. I think the topic I'm, I guess I'm coming on to from that perspective is really you know, contractors and FTEs combined, they can make quite an interesting composition, if you like, yeah. purely on the yeah. basis that, you know, full-time employees are invested in the company's growth naturally because they want to get promoted. They want to have more responsibility, a bigger piece of the pie if they've got equity involved. Contractors come in, they're there to do a job, they're subject matter experts and they go. As a manager, have you ever had to manage them both? And what would the two differences be? Sure. Yeah. So a couple of my different roles, we had outsourced work underneath us, right? So like they were contractors for IBM or mm -hmm. Capgemini or any of those places, right? So I think, like you said, those were the SMEs who came in. And then we also had a full-time employee program to work with them. I think they bring in two different perspectives, right? Like you said, the SMEs are there to get a job done. They bring their knowledge to the table. They are there to complete the activity and move on to the next task, right? 
So one of the things I think that that leads to is obviously work being done on budget and on time because they have to hold themselves to that budget, right? Like they're only budgeted for 80 hours and they, especially if it's where it's where it gets tricky with like fixed price contracts versus, you know, other types of contracts where like they might only be getting paid X amount of money to get complete and they have that time and building and there's change requests and all that fun stuff that comes into that. So I like the mix there, right? Because you get people who are there looking towards the future, right? Like full-time yeah. employees will look towards the future. And they'll like, is this future proof? And then contractors are just trying to get the job done. Not all the time, but like they have very narrow focus. Like we're here to do task A. And sometimes I think when you don't have the insight of a future, sometimes task A can lead to task B and C having to be created because task A worked in that instance. But then when we try to expand it or grow it, it doesn't work, right? So I think that's a good have a balance between the two. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think a lot of people that I'm speaking to certainly are going down that model. You mentioned obviously another topic as well, the whole contract to hire piece. I really like that. I know I'm not necessarily hiring those people, but whenever I'm <laughs> speaking to clients, I'm always suggesting that because as you rightly said, everyone in the process gets to try before they buy essentially. So the contractor or, or the candidate gets to try the company before they commit full time, just like the, the company gets to try out the, the candidate before they commit full time. So I think that's a brilliant model. In terms of yourself then, Michael, if we're going back to sort of the contract and permanent peace, not so much those two specific, but more about personalities, more about, I guess, different people working with, with other people in terms of personalities. As a leader, how do you manage different personalities coherently? Yeah, I think that's part of the key part of the job, right? Like, so one of the things that I like to do is I like to see what works and with each guy, right? So like one of the things that I do is I have a monthly check-in with all my, all my direct, direct mm -hmm. reports, right? Ask them what's working, what's not working. It's one of the key pieces also of our agile methodology. We do our sprint retrospectives, which is internal just to the dev team. No one else is in it but us. And we have two things where people get to vocally say things that worked or didn't work in there. And then we have an anonymous section in our sprint retrospective where people can put things on the board. Our team's big enough that you don't know that so-and-so did it, right? Yeah. But it's anonymous here for people to say things that worked or didn't work anonymously, right? Because some people might feel if they know who said it, it would be attacking them, right? It kind of takes the personalness out of it. But I think being having that open communication to see what's working for your team allows you to mold and shift what's going on, right? And if you take all that information in and you figure out what the next step is to make sure the team is functioning properly, I think then things start to really fall in place. Yeah, completely agree. Really, really good point you made there. In terms of your non-negotiables as a leader, a lot of leaders that I speak to have a set of non-negotiables that they want their staff to adhere to just purely on the basis that they're a team. You know, these are the, the non-negotiables they set just to ensure that there's a bit of a culture there, but also there's a bit of a line that people don't cross or people know what the expectations are. What would you say some of the key non-negotiables you set your staff? Sure. One of the key non-negotiables that I think I try to bring to the table is being open, right? Just because someone did something one way doesn't mean that that's the only way to be done. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that their way is right or your way is wrong, right? Like we need to have that open communication. So one of the things that I make sure we do on our team is that no one is the only person who works on a specific part of the app, right? Responsibility shifts. So that way you get multiple hands in there and everyone kind of works on it. My staff is a lot of junior developers on our staff, right? Okay. It's just the nature of the startup business that we're in that when we're hiring to keep costs down, we tend to start, you know, get a lot of younger people, right? And then what we do is when someone brings something new and interesting to the table, I kind of make them show it to everybody. And then everyone can ask questions and poke and prod, right? To figure out if A, what they did is new and exciting, right? Like it's a different way that we do it. And then we also then can make a determination that this is our new best practice going forward and all things should be done this way, right? So I try to make sure that everyone feels like they have input. 
And that's one of the negotiables that I want people to be comfortable with having that conversation and you know providing their input. And then, which kind of leads to the negotiable of being adaptive, right? I don't want rigid people. I'm looking for people who are adaptive, who are willing to learn and be curious. I like that. In terms of the curious piece, could you maybe expand on that a little bit more? Yeah. And I think it ties back to what we were talking about a little earlier about how something new is always popping up and pulling us back in. Mm-hmm. I want people to be curious. And I've written this language for the last five years. I don't want to learn this language that you're trying to introduce for a new piece of the app, right? Like I want you to be curious that under learning the new framework or learning a new language or learning a new skill, like picking up DevOps or picking up, you know, production support tickets, all that kind of stuff, like being curious about what's going on outside of what you're currently working on. I think it's a great skill, great, you know, mindset to have in the development space. I agree. I agree. So then you mentioned in terms of your staff, most of them are junior people. Mm-hmm. In terms of the, I guess, mindset that they have, how do you encourage them to, you know, come out of themselves more and be more, I guess, heavily involved in the process? Because I think from when I speak to other other leaders, a lot of people, a lot of junior people can sometimes be quite shy naturally because it's their first job or it's their second job, et cetera. How would you yeah. get the maximum out of them? So I think implementing that culture that like they're not a no culture, right? Like the minute someone, they bring something up, it's not a, no, I don't like how that looks, right? Like it's more of like, oh, that's interesting. Let's let's explore that a little bit more. Like making it feel like when they bring stuff and like, that's one of the key things that I like to do at sort of every year is like level set goals. And that's one of the goals I give my developers. Like, I want you to push towards learning this, right? And it's like one of the other pieces of the app or come up with like one of the things that it's always hard to do and it's something I didn't like to do as a developer, but I think it really is helpful is documenting like best practices type stuff in our in our confluence for our, mm-hmm. our GitHub, right? And I think if you get them to create the document and then present that, like we do it at like our sprint in our retrospectives or on our standups or something like that, when someone creates a new document, they you know walk through it with the team. I think just the more that they do that and have that exposure of putting themselves out there, it sure. naturally drives them to feel more confident, right? I completely and, agree. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I, I like to instill in our staff is that you come up with an idea and I say, you know, great, let's go, let's go with it, right? It's not really a my way or the highway type thing, right? Because as much as I think one of the key faults that people who come or are ICs and they become managers occasionally is that it's their way or the highway. You know, just because you think you're the smartest person in the room doesn't mean that someone else can't come up with a more brilliant solution, a more elegant solution or a cleaner solution or whatever the way you want to look at it, right? So I think you have to be open. And that's one of the things I try to drive is that I could give you the requirements and how I think it should be done. But if you get into it and that doesn't work, I don't want you to just force that square peg in the round hole. We back up and be like, hey, this isn't working. And then we can brainstorm together or you can present me with solutions, right? It's one of the things that I learned from one of my managers at Deloitte. When I used to bring a problem to him, he would always come back to me, all right, give me three solutions to that. Right. Not that you always could come up with three, but the idea is that like, here's the problem. Here's come up with a couple of solutions. And then we can get together and figure out which solution is the best. Right. Always coming back with, here's a problem, not just giving them my, giving people solutions, having them come up with them and us working together to come up with the best solution. And then how do you, I guess, give them the, the confidence that they can come up with good solutions? Because let's say it's their first job, right? They don't, they might not necessarily have the belief in themselves that they can come up with a viable solution. So how would you in- enrich them with that confidence? Sure. One of the things I think I've, I've said in the past to them, when people were a little hesitant, like, listen, I hired you because I believe in the skills that you presented during the interview process, right? Like you show that you know what you're talking about. Now mm-hmm. you need to just show other people, right? Yeah, I know it's hard. And I, 
experience it with other people being just a little, little hesitant to do that in larger groups, but then they'll come off on the side and like ping me or talk to me off the side, like, hey, why don't we do this? And it's just continuous and like, that's a great idea. Why don't we talk about that tomorrow? Like, but even when they bring the good ideas up, have them recircle it back with the team to just get that confidence. And when they get the validation from their team, as well as their leader, I think that really is what helps drive that confidence. Like, all right, I can do this, right? I like that. That's a good piece of knowledge there. And in terms of yourself then, right, because you're managing junior people, you were once junior yourself. What would you say the biggest lesson you learned as a junior developer, which you try and ensure your, I guess your staff don't make the same mistake or, or learn from very quickly? One of the things that I think I learned hard the early way was that like I excelled really quickly when I, I got to do this, right? Like while I was still in training, I was actually writing production code at that point. And, you know, one of the things I think that I needed to learn and that I did learn and that I, I try to instill people is be humble. Yeah. And because sometimes you think you're the smartest person in the room. And then the first time you put a bug in production, that that experience tends to shatter pretty quickly, right? That vision of yourself. So if you're always humble and you're always think there's ways to get better, then I think what helps is that when you do make mistakes, because listen, we're all human, we all make them, right? It doesn't like shatter your self-image and then you start questioning everything you do, right? It's like, you know, mistakes happen. Mistakes, not that they're great, but they're good for your personal growth because that's something you, you won't make that mistake again, right? You learn from those mistakes because if you don't make mistakes, you don't learn. So that's one of the one of the key things I tell guys when like something breaks and they're like, oh, they like start like freaking out as we're trying to debug something like, no, no, no calm down. It's okay these things happen that's part of software development like if you wait till it's perfect you've waited too long and it's taken you years to build it right because it's that fine balance between time effort and design right where you're trying to figure out you have x amount of points where can you fit all these points because if you put it all in time it's going to take way too long and it's never going to you're never going to get it in right it's all about finding that balance of course absolutely finding the balance is so key regardless of what you do whether you're just starting out or whether you've been in the industry for 20 years always finding a balance is super super key so if we're looking at your career then, Michael, up until now, you know, you're, you're out on Defend at the moment, overseeing the software engineering team. Fast forward probably seven to 10 years ago, you were just starting out on your career. You've had a long, successful career. You've worked your way up the ranks and I see to now running a team of engineers. What would you say some of the biggest successes you had? So I think some of the biggest successes I think I feel like I had in my career is just that as I've moved up and really like drove and focused, I continued to grow, right? I want to say getting my MBA was one of my biggest career successes for me. Going back to school the first time to go get my degree and, you know, get my general IT degree and then making the decision to go get my MBA was a big turning point, I think, for me, because it just helped really tie the two sides of the brain together. And that ties into one of the things I think I said earlier about being curious, right? Like always looking to learn. That's what we have to do to stay relevant, right? We are continuing to grow and learn. So that's one of the, the key successes, I think, is that I didn't get stuck in my ways. And while I was very successful at what I was doing to start, I continue to push myself to learn more and get hands on more things and do more things, right? To grow my knowledge base. And what would you say some of the biggest issues and challenges you've had? Some of the, the biggest issues and challenges I think I've had in my career relate to, like we talked about earlier, being humble, right? That is something that when, you know, you're going through that understanding that you're going to make mistakes and they're going to happen and being okay with that, like not being okay that you're going to make the mistake and continue to make them right. But like not letting that shake you to your core. Cause I think one of the hardest things people do get into is related to like, you know, working with other people, right? Cause not everyone's personality is always going to be best friends with everyone you've been on the team. But one of those hurdles that you have to learn to deal with is working with people who make you uncomfortable because it's not always going to be rosy, right? Of course. 
And I think that's one of the, the key things you learn, the, at least I learned, is that just because your personalities don't clash doesn't mean you can't work together and doesn't mean you can't be in good standing in the team, right? So that's one of the things I think some people struggle with is that when something goes wrong or something happens to not be able to overcome that and it affects their work and they end up moving on to a different company just when it was just a, a small blip right so like being being resilient and being able to overcome adversity i think is one of the big things i learned in my career and in terms of if you're teaching someone how to do that or giving them advice what advice would you give one of the things that i would say is that work is it's not your whole life right so like while you might have to you know just deal with something for a little bit while you're at work. In the grand scheme of things, it's not that big a part of your day. So you kind of have to figure out how to just you know get it done and move on. And then one of the other things I always talk about is being communicative with the person. So like mm -hmm. if someone's doing something that upsets you, obviously you want to communicate that in a in a non-confrontational way. So that's one of the key things I think is learning how to effectively communicate with people is the easiest way to help cut down on these some of those like interpersonal conflicts that you can run into. And if you were teaching someone or training someone to be a, a team lead or a manager now, what would mm -hmm. you, advice would you give them? Listen, that's one of the things that I think you know, we all get in our own way with that we don't listen to what's going on around us, right? We got to take in the information we're getting from above and disseminating it down low and also taking the information that's coming from, from below us, right? Like it, it's one of the biggest things I think we can do is listen to people and really like get to know them. To the extent of understand what's going on, where they are, that gives you that information you need to really effectively lead that person, which helps you effectively lead a team. Awesome. Michael, it's almost near the, the end of our time together, which is absolutely flown by. And I've really appreciated you having on some of the insights you've given us. And I know some of the listeners will find this knowledge invaluable. I always ask a question before I let someone go. And it's a question I ask every leader. Everyone's got a different answer. A lot of our listeners are just starting out on their careers, junior developers, or people looking to you know move their career to the next level from being an IC to a manager or team leader, et cetera. What advice would you have for people just starting out their careers within software? I think continuing your education, when I say that, I don't mean going back to school or whatever. It's always try to be you know, learning something new, right? The more you push yourself to learn these things, the greater your skill set and the, your knowledge base grows. And as those things start to stack up on your resume, in your knowledge base, you start to see more and more opportunities be presented to you, right? And one of the things I would say from my experience, it's just because you're comfortable doesn't mean you don't need to change, right? Sometimes I think we all fall into that mentality that like I'm in a good role and I'm comfortable here, which is great sometimes, but sometimes you might need to, you know, take that step forward and take that big leap because like I'm sure there's plenty of young people and I know I was one of them looking at JDs and being like I don't think I qualify for this role, I'm not even going to apply. But I think one of those things I would say is that if you think you could do it, don't stop yourself from trying, right? Because you'd be shocked at what you can do when you actually get that opportunity presented to you. Awesome. Good stuff, Michael. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really appreciated you having on. Do you have any last words for our listeners? No, and it's awesome getting an opportunity to speak to you today, James. And thank you so much for having me on. Pleasure's all mine, my friend. Take care. All right, take care. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Software Synergy Podcast. A big thank you to my guest today, Michael McDermott. What a fantastic story he had with us talking about his past, and his future and some of his successes and challenges. Michael's advice was invaluable for new people coming into the industry, as well as leaders just starting out in their management career. Be sure to follow us and stay tuned for the next episode of your favorite technology podcast.